All right, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, and uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a desperate situation, uh, a situation where you felt just out of your league, uh, out of your realm of expertise, um, but some desperate situation. I want you to put that in your mind this morning, whatever that is, and I'm not going to tell you one because I want you to think about yours, right? And this morning when we come to the scripture in Luke chapter 7, we're going to read two stories about two people in very desperate situations. And we're going to see Jesus' uh, compassionate love for these people. For, and one of them is an outsider, not part of the family of God. But we're also going to see his authority. We're going to see his compassion and his love, but we're also going to see his authority to do something about this de desperate situation. So let's read it together. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says, After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he saw he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and touched the beer. Beer, I forgot to look up how to pronounce this word. He came up and touched, it's like coffin. He came in, I'm just going to say coffin, okay? Uh, then he came up and touched the coffin and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word this morning, and I thank you for your heart for us. God, that is one of compassion. It's one of love and tenderness that you see our condition and you did something about it God your compassion moved you to action God we thank you that you not are only a compassionate God but you are also a capable God who has all authority and you are able 
to do something about condition. And I thank you for the stories, God. I thank you for the confidence that they give us that, that you really are the Son of God. But I thank you that they also give us hope, God, that you know our condition and you did something about it. You sent Jesus to die for us. And if we put our faith in you, then we can be saved. We can live eternally forever with you. And we, like this widow's son, will rise one day. God, I pray that um, you would help us to know your word, to love you through it, and to be moved to compassion and love for our neighbor because of it, God. We love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, we're going to talk about two stories, and it's a little ambitious this morning, but let's go. All right. Uh, first, Jesus has finished his Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, and he comes to Capernaum. Capernaum, he's been there uh, a number of times. It's probably kind of the base of his first like year and a half or two years of ministry. He's, he's north Israel, around the Sea of Galilee. This is a kind of a prominent area in that place. And there's another character that enters the story. He's a centurion. A centurion. Now, a centurion was a Roman uh, military officer who was in charge of a hundred men. A cent. You see it? Like cent, like century. Okay, this is, that's your English lesson for the day. All right. He's in charge of a hundred soldiers. So this, this guy, we don't know a lot about him. We're going to find out a little bit more. But he is a strong leader. He's a faithful man. If he doesn't get to this point in the Roman military unless he is like that. He's probably working for Herod in Capernaum. He's a, he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He's not of the people of Israel. So he is an outsider, and that's going to be important for our story. Uh, but we also know that he seems to be a good man. He loves Israel, right? That, he tells us this later in the story. He even built them a synagogue. Right? So he, he has some affection for Israel and the things of God. Sometimes in Acts, these men are called God-fearers. Um, they are not Jews. They are not practicing Judaism. But they have a knowledge of and respect of and a fear of the God of Israel, even though they are not part of it. So this guy comes in the story. And there's only one problem. His desperate situation. He has a highly valued servant who was sick. And Luke gives us very little detail, but if you go read the story in Matthew, Matthew's gospel describes this servant as paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Okay? Sick, that sounds like a cold. Paralyzed, terrible suffering, sounds like he fell off the balcony, right? I mean, it sounds like there's been some terrible accident, right? This is a desperate situation for... Um, we don't know the details, but it is a desperate situation. So it tells us in verse 3, if you look there, it says, When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. So, so Jesus has been around, and he's, he's done healings, and he's done miraculous things. And so the centurion thinks in his mind, if he can do that, then maybe he can do something about this. This is his 911 call in the midst of a desperate situation. He remembers, he's, he's heard these stories. He may not have been there. He may not have seen them with his own eyes, but he's at least heard, right? And so he sends some Jewish elders. He doesn't go himself. He sends some uh, to go and uh, speak to Jesus on his behalf. And it tells us in verse 4 that they went and they pleaded with Jesus. They begged Jesus. Now, I find this a little interesting 
as if like Jesus needed being begged to come. But maybe, I don't know, I don't know why they didn't just go, hey, will you do this? No, there, there's, a, there's a desperation here from these people. Now notice in verse 5 how they try to, try to persuade Jesus, I guess, try to convince him. It says, it started at the end of verse 4, it says, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Right? These Jews are looking at this Gentile, this outsider, this guy who doesn't belong to their family. He, he's excluded, and, but they're going, yeah, but Jesus, you don't understand. This guy's worthy. This guy has some good works. This guy has some, some love for us, and, and you should do this. He's worthy of this. We have all kinds of ways that we view ourselves as worthy, right? We view ourselves as like, hey, man, bad things really shouldn't happen to me because of this or this or that, right? We're worthy of God's grace. We're worthy of God's mercy because, because of whatever we fill in the blank with. And I think that's what they're doing here. They're going, Jesus, you need to come heal this guy because he's worthy. He's a good man. And look what it says, verse 6. And Jesus went... Now, we don't know why Jesus went. It doesn't tell us. He doesn't know all the situation, but he moves. I'm assuming it's compassion at this moment that moves him to action. I don't think it's his worthiness that moves Jesus to action because we're going to see what he has to say in a sec. But we know that Jesus, being led by the Spirit, goes. Look in verse 6. It says, and Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Do you notice the difference between the centurion, how he views himself, versus how these Jewish leaders, they're saying he's worthy, he's a good man, he deserves this. And what does the centurion say? I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof. Lord, don't trouble. This is too much trouble for you. He calls him Lord, which has massive implications for a Roman officer to call this Jewish teacher Lord. But, but he says, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I am not worthy. Now, some people have said it's because if Jesus were to enter a Gentile's house, he would become unclean. He would have to go through all this cleaning rituals, and he would have to do all this stuff to, to kind of get back to normal. But I don't think that's what the centurion's thinking about. The centurion knows him, his own self, and he's going, Jesus, I'm, I'm not worthy. If you really knew who I was, you would know But the centurion is still desperate. And though he doesn't want him to come into his house, look what it says in verse 7. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Say the word and let my servant be healed. This centurion has a ton of faith in Jesus. And he's expressing it. Like this is is not... um, manufactured to try to get Jesus to do something. This is not conjured up to try to manipulate or whatever. He really believes this because he's in a desperate situation. He goes, Jesus, you don't have to come. Just say the word. You're there. We're over here. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. He has immense faith. He knows that Jesus can just think it. Jesus can, I don't know, whatever, however Jesus heals, he just does it and it's done. He doesn't have to come. Look at verse 8. 
He says, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Right? He, he says, I, I know what this is like, and I know it's similar to my situation. If I tell one of my people to go, they go. If I tell one of my people to come, they come. And he's telling Jesus, I believe this about you. If you tell somebody to go, they go. You're Lord. If you tell somebody to come, they come. If you tell a sickness to be gone, it's gone. If you tell paralysis to be done, it's done. Right? This guy has an incredible view of Jesus' authority. Jesus' ability. He had no doubt that Jesus could save him, could, could heal his servant. And look what it says. Jesus marveled at him. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. This is one of only two times in Scripture that it says that Jesus marveled at something, right? Jesus, with all knowledge, with, with, he's God himself on this earth, and he marvels at this. He's amazed by this. He's shocked by it. And he turns around and he says a very provocative statement. He says, I tell you, and he's looking at a crowd of Israelites, and he says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. It's like me looking at you. I don't even know. I can't even think of what would be so offensive this morning to say to you, a bunch of church people. Right? Jesus turns around to Israel and he says, this centurion who you hate, this centurion who's a, so dirty we can't even go in his house, this centurion who's ruling over you, I haven't found faith like that in all of Israel. This is incredibly offensive to them, but hopeful for us bunch of Gentiles in the room, right? Because this is not just about, let me put down you for your lack of faith. No, this is, this is a, a picture, right? And we're going to see it in a sec. I'm, I'm trying not to jump the gun. Jesus is foreshadowing that, that the Gentiles are going to be included. Those who are not part of the family are going to become part of the family. The outsiders are going to become insiders. The, the unclean are going to become clean. You see this? And Jesus is writing this story, or Luke is telling this story to highlight this point. That Gentiles can have faith. I mean, think about the amazing thing that that is. It's not just if you're born in the right family. No, every single one of us, if we have faith, can be included in the family of God. Right? It's an amazing thought, and we take that for granted because we've lived under that for so long, but this was an incredibly provocative statement. Look at verse 10. It says, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. We actually, Jesus just says this, and then they just leave, and then they find the servant well. There's no mention of he said Servant be healed. He didn't go and lay hands on him. He doesn't pray for him. There's no sense that he said anything. He didn't declare anything in this moment. They just leave and they go back. And this man who was paralyzed and in terrible suffering is now healed. And the implication is, and everybody knows what happened. Well, see, what had happened was Jesus had healed him, even though he wasn't even there now, this morning, I want to do something a little different than what we normally do. 
I want to teach you a little bit about how to read the Bible well, okay? Because we can come to stories like this and we can very much take the wrong application and, and read this out of context and all sorts of things. And so I want you to think about this paradigm first, okay? One way we read the Bible well is we think about what it meant then, what it means always, and what it means now, right? We think about what it meant then. That means what was the original author writing to the original audience in the original context? What was he trying to say? That's very important. We have to start there. But we believe that God's word, you can stay on that slide, Kayla, then, always, now. We have, to, we have to then take that, and there is a always principle. This word was not just written for Theophilus, okay, who Luke wrote his gospel to. No, we believe God also wrote it, and he wrote it for all people at all times in all cultures, right? And so there is a principle that is being taught about who God is, who we are, that is always true, but then there's also present day now application. It's important that you go through this order, though. You can't just jump to this verse and go, okay, anytime I'm in a desperate situation, I'm just going to have faith, and we'll talk about this in a sec. Like, we can't just read ourselves into the story. We have to read the story for what it is. So let's think about this story we just read. What is the then? What is the then for this story? Luke wrote this gospel to a man named Theophilus, who is a Gentile. And so he is showing him, like we saw so many times, that Jesus really is the Son of God. And that the gospel was for everyone, Gentiles included. Do you see this? I think this is, this is the point of this story, that, that Luke is showing Theophilus. Now, what's the always for this story? The always, there's a, there's a number of things we could point out. One, Jesus has authority over all things at all times, even sickness and death. Right? That authority always exists and is always true. It's true today. Jesus also has always loved those who are outsiders. He's never been just about this one group of people. He's always been, has a heart to see the outsiders brought in. And what is the now? What is the now for us? And number one, we can pray for healing to God. Why? Because Jesus has both compassion and authority. And we can pray for healing. We can absolutely pray for miracles in desperate situations. That is 100% one of the modern day applications of this. But I think more than, not more than that, but equally, this is meant to teach us that we are the centurion. That we're the outsider who has been granted entrance into the family through faith, right? And we should, that's part of the application for us in our present day. You see that? Now, there's wrong ways to interpret this text. Some people read texts like this and say that God will always heal in every situation if we just have faith, right? And this has burned and hurt so many people in our day. Because if they don't get healing, then whose fault is it? It's theirs, because they don't have enough faith. It's not God's, because God is fully capable, but it's your fault because you don't have enough faith. That's why your aunt, whatever, right? That is not what's being taught here. 
right? And we're going to see that through uh, the next story too, right? And you can also, there's another wrong application that if we just say the word, that Jesus is obligated to heal this word of faith. If I just proclaim it, then it has to happen. God is required to do this. That is not the point of this story. And we're going to see that next. Let's look at the next one. Verse 11. It says, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples, and a great crowd went with him. I'm not, I'm not going to read it. I don't have time. Um, he comes to this, this town, Nain. It's about a day's journey away. And when he arrives, just as it was, Jesus walks up to the outer gates. And of course, what's going on? It says a man had died. Look at verse 12. He drew near to the gate of the town. A man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. This man has died, and in their day, there was probably a max of about 24 hours from the moment of death to when they're doing this, right? That they're not waiting weeks, they're not waiting months, they're going to bury the body within 24 hours, okay? But this guy, there's been enough time for the town to be notified, for people to come and mourn, for people to come and, and do what they needed to do to prepare the body, to put him on the Pierre or coffin as we're going to, I can't, I really didn't look up how to pronounce that word. Somebody inform me after, okay? But, but it's been about 24 hours, right? He is dead. He's not asleep. He's not in a coma. He's dead. And he's not only dead, he was the only son of his mother, right? He's an only child. He's an only son. And it tells us that she was a widow. Now, who is this, who's in a desperate situation in this story? The widow, right? Because not only is she a widow who has lost her husband, her sense of provision and protection in this world, her, her provider, she's now lost her only son who had hopefully stepped up and filled that role of providing for her and protecting her. She is... All alone. And her world has come shattering down in a matter of 24 hours. She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have any kids. She's hurt. The rest of her future is totally dependent on the generosity of others. But there's some other people in this story. If you notice, this word crowd is used a lot through this section and the last section. There's a crowd. There's a lot of people watching this. And I don't think that's insignificant in this story. Right? Luke is putting that detail in there for a reason. Why? One, because it's true. Uh, but he's reminding us this was not done in a corner. What we're talking about, our faith, even us today as Christians, this was not done in a corner. This was in Nain on this day after he was in Capernaum. And there was a great crowd who had followed Jesus from Capernaum, who were in the processional, right? There's a lot of people around. Why is that significant? Because Luke's writing to Theophilus, trying to convince him of the truth of these stories. It says in verse 13, And the Lord saw her, and he had compassion on her. As many that day did, Jesus looks at the situation, he sees her, and he felt compassion. The word for compassion is like his guts were wrenching, 
right? He was deeply moved. You'd be heartless not to feel something for this lady on this day, even if you don't know her. But unlike everyone else who's a part of the crowd who feels something, feels compassion, they don't have authority. Jesus feels compassion, and he has authority, and it moves him to action. And what he does, he goes up to her. Look at verse 13. And he says, do not weep. Now, another wrong interpretation of this text is at funerals, you should walk up to people and say, do not weep, right? That's not what the scripture is teaching, right? I don't suggest you do that, all right? Next funeral, don't tell people to stop crying. It's really not appropriate, all right? Um, but Jesus is not insensitive in this moment. He's not saying this because he can't handle emotion or he's tired of her weeping or being dramatic. No. No, he's telling her, he's signaling, I'm about to do something that you don't need to weep. And it says that he reached out and he touched the coffin, verse 14, and they stood still. He wasn't allowed to touch the body because that would make him unclean, but he touches the coffin and he stops it. And then he, he, it says in verse 14, he came up, he touched, and the bear stood still, and he spoke. We, we, we do this too at funerals before you get weirded out that Jesus is speaking to a dead body. People come to the body, and they whisper, and they speak, and they laugh, and they cry, and we speak to dead bodies, and we've done it for centuries, and it's never had any effect, Right? Some today in our current Christian culture believe that we should still speak to dead bodies and call them back to life. And how tragic for those families when that doesn't happen. How tragic for their faith when it's proclaimed we just didn't have enough faith to make this dead body come back to life. But Jesus comes to this body, and he, he speaks to him. And what does he say? Young man, I say to you, arise. I'm picturing me in the mornings trying to wake my, my now first grader up for school. Young man, arise. That's my new line that I'm going to start using in the mornings. And that typically doesn't work with Hudson. I've got to turn off the sound machine, turn on the lights, rip off, like fight him for the covers. I've got to move his feet. I've got to tickle him. And then I can say, young man, arise. And that's still not going to be enough. I'm going to need to put his feet on the floor and give him a little slap. You know, like that's what it's going to take to see my young man arise. And uh, I, I picture this like that. Jesus in this moment is speaking to this dead body. And I can't even imagine what everybody in the room, or everybody in this procession is even thinking. Like, what, what do you mean, young man, arise? Like, it's one thing to say, man, we loved you. You were awesome. We'll take care of your mom, right? Those would have been appropriate things to say to a dead body. But Jesus says, young man, arise. And look at verse 15. There's a huge crowd around from the funeral, there's a huge crowd following Jesus, and Jesus has just spoken to this dead man to say, come alive, and what does it say? And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Like, if you were there that day, 
you're telling that story the rest of your life, right? You're, you're telling that story the rest of your life. I was in Nain the day Jesus called the young boy back to life, right? And if you, you change the details, what was going to happen? The other people that were in Nain saw the dead man come back to life say, no, that wasn't how it went. Remember? Jesus walked up and he said, dead man arise. And the, remember, we were there, right? You don't forget a moment like this. His arm didn't flinch. It wasn't just like a spasm in his body. It wasn't anything like that. No, he sat up and he began to talk. Dead men don't sit up. Dead men don't talk. And it says, verse 16, fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And I, I don't know what I would do that day, but there would be amazement. There would be great fear that seized us all if we saw a dead body come back to life. What, what does this mean? What have we just witnessed? But they know this cannot just be from man. So they, it says they glorify God. They know that only God controls life and death. They've all spoken to dead bodies, and none of them have come back to life. And Jesus did something that none of them have ever been able to do. They know that this is God, but they also recognize this, is, this, is, this means that Jesus is a great prophet. There's a story, we don't have time, in uh, 1 Kings 17, where Elijah, do you remember? He raises a dead boy back from life, from dead to life. It was a widow's son in Zarephath. You remember this? Okay, we don't have time to go there. But I can't, they, they had to see the similarity that day to go, wow, Elijah did this. He was a prophet from God. Jesus just did this. Wow, this is from God. And that's what they say, verse 16, that God has visited his people. They're beginning to recognize and grasp the truth that Luke is trying to get across to Theophilus, that Jesus is the Son of God sent to the world to rescue us. And it says that this report, this amazing report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So let's think quickly. I know I'm past my time. Let's think quickly about the then, always, now of this story. The then, always, now, right? Luke is writing this story to Theophilus to convince him of the truth, to have certainty about the things that he'd been taught, to give him evidence that this really was true, that Jesus really has authority over life and death, right? That's the then. The always, nothing is too hard for Jesus. He has authority over life and death today. That's still true to this day. And he loves us so much that he, too, wants to bring us back to life. But before we jump to wrong conclusions, let's look at the now. We have to trust and submit our lives to this person. If he really can raise dead young men back to life, if he really can speak and heal and, and, and just think and heal, and he really is a prophet sent from God, if he really is the Son of God, then what is our only rightful response is submission because you are Lord. You have authority. Now, it's also true for us today that this is our future. 
that one day Jesus will speak over our dead bodies and we will be raised back to life and we will be caught up with him and we will spend eternity in heaven. Death is not the end for those of us who are in Christ. There's a lot of wrong applications from this. Some people believe that we should pray for our loved ones to arise from the dead. That we should prophesy that and speak that and proclaim it and believe it with enough faith and and maybe it will happen. But let me remind you of a truth from this passage. This young man, he's not with us today. This young man died again, right? And you and every single one of us in this room will die. There is no escape from our physical death. As much as our family would like us to live forever on this earth and all of that, that is not the end for us. That that is a wrong application of this text. The point of it and the drive of the text is to get us to think about our own death. And to think about not physical resurrection, but to think about eternal forever resurrection with the Lord Jesus who has authority and compassion over all things. And that's what I want us to think about today as we close. Every single one of us will die. And every single one of us will spend eternity somewhere. What's going to happen? What's going to happen to you? Do you know Jesus? I love the stories today of Aubrey and Jameson because they know they love God and they know that he died to save them. And they're brave enough, even if it's a little embarrassing, to stand up in front of a whole church and say, you know what? I'm going to spend eternity with my Father in heaven because of what Jesus did. And if you've never done that, I would love to talk with you today. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word. God, I pray that um, this morning, God, you would convince us of the truth, God, of your compassion. God, your, your deep care and love for us. You'd also convince us of the truth of your authority over sickness and paralysis and even death, physical death, God. But more than that, your, your authority over all things, matters of eternal significance, God. God, I pray that we would not be so caught up in, in some sort of earthly miracle experience, God, that we would miss the bigger picture, God, that you have brought us, your enemies, the outsiders, into fellowship with your family through Jesus. God, what an immense treasure and gift that is. God, I pray that each one that's in the room this morning, God, would know the grace that is offered in Jesus, and they would experience salvation. God, we love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.